When is the last time you listened to a podcast about web development, web design, and small business and didn't fall asleep? Yes, we cover web development, web design, and small business, but like actual human beings with personalities. If you're a beginner, we're not going to talk over your head. It's more like asking your buddy for help. We have guests, we have fun, and let me tell you, these two can get off on a tangent. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to HTML All The Things Podcast. This is Matt Lawrence and Mike Curran. That's right, everybody. We are back, and this is the HTML All The Things Podcast. This week, title of the episode, Web Development Hot Takes. With a bit of a subtitle there, just to sort of give some context as to what we're talking about. Is HTML a programming language? Does React suck? So some controversial things, some hot takes, if you will, some hot topics. So this sounds interesting to you. Oh, good. Right away, I'm being in, I'm being emailed by somebody. I just talked to Mike about how much I've been really kind of studying SEO and really studying growth. And I don't know if you just heard my phone go off, but I my TikTok has been ruined by learning material to the point where I used to go into bed and just see a bunch of stupid videos. And now I see everything about how to golf because I'm trying to learn how to golf and then also how to get views on on blogs and videos and stuff. And so I'm just being constantly berated and I just got a friggin' newsletter about it. So it's getting out of control. (laughs) So this sounds interesting to you. You want to support the show. You can go check us out on that Patreon, leave a review or rating on your podcast app. Join us on our discord server or share this with your friends. And this is going to be the first iteration of the, the title of the week, I guess is what we're going to call it. If you haven't uh, listened to the episode a couple weeks ago, we had a kind of like a joke at the time where we get, we gave ourselves, I think I gave myself a title of that week and it was based upon the context around that week, uh, what had happened that week and what I, my goals were for that week. And so now we're going to try to do this either weekly or whenever we see appropriate. So this week, both Mike and I have a title. Mike, I've talked a bunch. What's your title for this week? Yeah, for sure. I'm actually between two titles. One is Schema Creator and the other one is Requirements Gatherer. So this week I was kind of deeply into scoping out a new project for a job that I'm working on. And uh, that involved a lot of data collection, obviously, like getting how what we need, what features we need. So we're taking that and creating requirements from that. And then also creating like a database schema. So that's was my life for the past probably like week and a half or so. Um, but I think I'm evolving from that into API writer. So maybe stay tuned for next week's API writer title. <laughs> Ooh, we, uh, so mine sounds philosophical, might even almost sound depressing. It's kind of sound depressing when I was writing it, but it, it, I assure you it isn't, it isn't depressing. It's a good thing. And mine is life goal seeker, but this is with a technical twist. So I'm not just going to go off about the philo- like the philosophy of finding a life goal or something. Um, but basically what I'm after right now, and I've, I've found this out because I've been working, like I said, on the HTML, all the things website, I've been working on our other projects or my, my other personal project, DOPM, day one patch media. And, um, I've just sort of been, you know, why am I, why do I do projects like this? Obviously for work, but why else do I do projects like this? And I kind of like sat there on the couch in the dark, literally thinking, why do I do this type of stuff? And I think what I'm fishing for, and I'm going to shoot toward this now as a goal, is I want to be in charge of a project that is successful. And success will be defined by me. It's not going to be something where it has to reach a Fortune 500 company or something. It doesn't even need to be a professional goal. It can be a uh, personal goal. 
But what I'm shooting for is success in something that I've managed. And this isn't spitting in the face of anything that I have done. I've worked for BerryFlow. I've worked for BlackBerry. I've worked for a bunch of companies for our own company, Digital Dynasty Design. And all those projects, or I shouldn't say all those projects, uh, but a lot of those projects have been really great. And any of the companies, every single company, BerryFlow, BlackBerry, and our own company has been great to me. There's been no, uh, nothing, nothing uh, nefarious has been done to me or anything like that. But I'm just... I, what I am seeking is I am seeking some sort of goal where like I start a website or I start something, whatever it is, and then I make it successful to the degree that I want. And so I am the reason why this is positive is that I am hitting my golf swing hard. I am I just I hit 400 bad shots straight up at the golf range. I was just like super angry. This is probably what led me to think about this. And I was like, what am I doing? And I was like, that's it. Called up a golf coach, uh, contacted a bunch of places, finally locked down a golf coach and also uh, set up a uh, practice range in my backyard. One of those like little nets practice that. And I'm also going to be going to the range and also playing golf. And my goal for this season is just to get better. I'm not trying to set a specific goal. I just want to hit consistent. And so the the same for professional wise, I am branching out and I'm trying to get uh, hat to be kind of on the map in terms of the website. And I'm trying to manage that project and get a lot of content out on there and do that. And these goals might change, but I know to find the goal that I want to do or to find the goal that will work for me, I need to, uh, or I guess not the goal that works for me, the project that works for me, I will need to expand out and try a bunch of different things. And so that is what I'm doing right now. And that's, that's my title for the week. But anyway, love you love it. No, I love it. Yeah, I think, I think it's the, it's the, it's something that we all need to do at some point in our lives, in my opinion, like we're just figure out the goals that we want to hit because sometimes we stagnate, sometimes we go in the, the wrong directions and stuff like that. So setting the goal of hitting life, of finding your life goals or finding the next thing, I think is a, a very valid thing. And I've, I've done that many times before in my life. Uh, so hats off to you, Matt. Uh, obviously, your success will be my success as well. So I am rooting for you. <laughs> well what's funny is uh, the reason why i yelled love it is because i was going to make a love it or list it joke but um (laughs) but i messed up the timing of it but uh what was what was horrible about this life goal or this this title i guess coming about was we just we just talked about how my tiktok has been too informative for me at night and someone came on there some sort of motivational speaker like i don't know tony robbins or something somebody i don't know and they were just like, you should write down or think about when you're in bed. And I'm like, oh, here we go. And they're like, you should think about exactly what you want to do with your goal. And they're like, if you get real anxious, that's not good. And I was just sitting there. I'm like, oh, and I started <laughs> to like panic. I was like, I don't know. Like, what am I doing? Like, what do I do? And so um, I'm obviously I'm being dramatic for dra- dramatization purposes. But uh, it was like a bit of a, you know what? All right. Let's see. Let's see what's going on. So that's where. That's where I'm at and uh, looking forward to it. I'll see you on the course. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I mean, that sounds good, but uh, I think let's move right into the episode, shall we? Because this is all about hot takes, spicy takes, uh, stuff that whenever I see on Twitter, I kind of cringe a little bit. So a lot of what I'm going to be talking about here is hot takes that I've seen, not so much that I have myself. Uh, I will obviously talk about my feelings about the hot takes and maybe 
Some of them will align, some of them won't. Uh, but the main goal I want from this episode is to be like, hot takes are kind of dumb. Uh, there's always going to be a gray area between the two, between whatever you're saying and whatever actually is the, the case. And uh, just having like a, a, a definite take on something is probably going to just generate drama. And that's what the hot takes are for. But they are kind of funny sometimes. And if you don't take them seriously, which you shouldn't, uh, they can be a source of information even or a source of just uh, entertainment for you. So jumping into the first one, and in my opinion, probably the most ridiculous one, because I don't even whatever, uh, HTML is or isn't a programming language. This has come up a million times. Um, it's probably been said by everyone in the tech Twitter community or in the tech community in general at some point, whether they're on one side or the other. Uh, a lot of people will say that HTML isn't a programming language because technically, like by the definition, it's a markup language. But the counter argument to that is always, hey, you're essentially gatekeeping programming. But on the other, like, I, I don't know, I, I could see both arguments here. I could see both sides. Um, the main argument I will say is that who gives a crap? Uh, it, it's a language and people use it for for things on the web and it creates good structure and it's really cool. Like HTML is an interesting way to handle UIs, right? To handle the structure of UIs, it's stood the test of time at this point and it's evolved like with HTML5 and all the interactivity that's been added to it natively. Like there's a bunch of stuff in HTML that essentially does create programming blocks, right? Like there, there's an audio component, there's a video component in HTML that will like, create a video element by just using a source tag. That's kind of programming. Like it is kind of programming. And you can expand HTML quite a bit with stuff like HTMX. Uh, we had the creator of, of that on our podcast recently. He, they've actually been accepted into the GitHub accelerator program, which is like this like open source accelerator that will allow them to work on their projects almost full time for a certain amount of time to expand them. So it's really cool that that like, again, HTML as a programming language, HTMX is expanding and is taking off. So not that it matters, but in a lot of cases, you can use it as a programming language. In a lot of cases, in most cases, it is just a markup language because that's what it is. Uh, and it's an, it's an interesting debate. Like the reason that I think some of these hot takes are at least entertainment wise interesting is because they, they, they start this conversation. Now the conversation gets off the rails when people come in and start yelling at each other. That's dumb. But when people actually start to like reason out one, one argument over another argument, that can be kind of interesting and constructive. There's something that came to mind when you were talking there and it would be super controversial in the workplace. So I want to be clear. I'm not advocating for this, but having been a person that has worked in a factory and having had, having have family members that have worked in factories for a lot of their lives, um, they get paid differently based on what job they're doing down to the hour, sometimes down to the minute, sometimes down to the 20 minutes, depending on the company policy. So if I'm working in the boxing part of the assembly line, I might get paid more than the person that's using the uh, organizer or something. I'm just making something up. So whenever a programmer, web developer is working on HTML, should we pay them less? You're not that's on developer hilarious. rate. You're on general <laughs> labor or you're on uh, office admin rate right now. Markup language rate. Markup language has its own rate. 
Yeah, sorry, man. We're starting a new project. A lot of it's going to be markup for two days. So we're going to pay you instead of $20 an hour, we're going to pay you $16 an hour, whatever the company policy and payment scheme looks like. And that sounds absolutely ridiculous. And so that's just, I don't know, it was something that just popped into my head, to be honest. But it is like HTML, like from a technical perspective, I guess it isn't a programming language, but it's a tool that you use to develop websites. And so if you're developing websites, are you a developer? Yes. Are you programming while you're developing? Maybe the question is, is, is that the disparity? Developer and programmer seem to go hand in hand. A lot of people say I'm a developer or I'm a programmer and it's basically a synonym, but maybe it's a development tool. It's not a programming tool, but it's also at this point we're splitting hairs. And so who cares? Yeah. Uh, to me, it's like HTML is a tool to make a website. So that's it. It's the same way that I think with something like Webflow, where I make Webflow projects. I make projects with no code tools, but I also add custom code into them, obviously, because I know how to do that. But the thing is, is would you say that my my title has to change? I'm no longer a web developer. I'm now Webflow user. You wouldn't because I am programming a little bit. And I am using some more advanced features, but these tools, even if someone is a beginner and they're not programming at all, they're not at not expanding the no code platform. They're just using what's there. These tools are not as easy as like the text message app you're using to text somebody. These are pretty advanced tools that do take time to learn, even if you are a full blown programmer or you consider yourself a full blown programmer. And so is a person that develops websites on on Webflow, are they a web developer? Kind of? Like, yeah, kind probably. of. Yeah, 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 kind of. And, and I think they are. Uh, and I also think another hot take, I guess, is titles are dumb. Like That's another thing. Like, we're splitting hairs here. And it's yeah. like, do you know how to make websites? Yeah, cool. Let's go. Yeah. Like, I especially like the senior versus junior versus intermediate level classification that to me is all just made up nonsense for the most part there is some validity inside of large corporate structures where you climb kind of a chain of of uh, a chain of like levels of engineering so there's l1 l2 l3 like google has that microsoft has that. like a lot of these bigger fang companies have a chain where there's a distinct line between a senior developer or like an L1 engineer to an L5 engineer, whatever. Um, there is some validity there. But when we're talking about small web development shops or one man shows like what one man, a, a person that can just create like a full stack application, there's such disparity between what people say is a senior developer and what people what actually is a senior, senior developer determined by random McGee. Uh, like it's just useless like if you can create a pro like you're a web developer in my opinion unless you're in one of these corporate structures you're a web developer great and if you can do a, a task from start to finish that means that you can do the task from start to finish you don't have to give yourself the label of senior i say this facetiously because i technically in my new role am senior but i don't think that that i think that that's just like a made-up title and it's there's going to be somebody that is going to be much more your senior in skill much more your senior in seniority, but could be worse in skill. Much more your senior in one half of your job and still landed the same senior position, but then has to learn 50% of the job 
as a beginner than climbing up. I have a question. I kind of, this is my kind of closing thought on this particular topic, but this, I have a question for you, Mike. Take it out of web development completely, just to sort of clear the air on that. You're out of school. You're no longer, you're no longer in school. And you decide one day that you want to learn how to make birdhouses. Completely unrelated to web development. This is why I wanted to do this. And you're sitting there with magazines and guides and books and instructions and tools uh, and shopping lists on tools you need to buy of all the stuff that you've learned on how to make these fancy birdhouses, starting with the basic ones up to the fancy ones. Are you a student? Oh. Well, mm-hmm. it depends. It depends. Are, are you selling your services? Wait, so you have to you have to sell the birdhouses for you to be a student? For you to not be a student. For you to not be a student. For you to not like essentially like But you are a student kind of. of bird of bird uh house creation. Sure. Sure. I mean I mean we're students for life, right? Like realistically in web development especially or in birdhouse creation. I mean birdhouse creation probably less so. There's I think a plateau, although eh, who knows, maybe like you just create more complex and complex until like you can't do it anymore. Um, so yeah, in anything, you're, oh, you can always be a student of something and a professional at the same time, in my opinion. So the, the fact, reason why I would I, oh, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Be, I, would, I would say you have to be kind of like a, a student to a student at the same time as you are a professional, because to maintain your skills, you have to continue to learn. Well, the reason why I wanted to bring this up is the fact that what you just did right there is exactly what I wanted, which is you expanded on what it means. And the reason for a title, the like to me anyway, the linguistic reason for a title is a quick summary. There's a reason why someone doesn't go and puts a job posting on Indeed and says, I need web developer. And then someone says, I am web developer. It's like you are hired now. There's a reason why there's an expansion uh, in conversation with an interview or several interviews, skill tests, the list goes on. But there's a reason why there's an expansion. It's just a way for us to not every single time someone says, hey, what do you do? It doesn't have to be a 20 to 30 minute conversation of React. I know functions, but I'm not sure on variables yet. And no, no one wants to expand that much. It's very much just I work on websites. I'm a web developer. I develop houses, whatever. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it's a short way to say what what you know. But again, like it's the issue with like those concrete, concrete, like senior title or junior title is that no one knows what that actually means. There are certain people that assume what senior should mean, but there is no technical definition of it in in, in a grander sense. So I think you're right, Matt, like there needs to there, the whole point of the interview process and the whole point of the job description is to come come out with like that initial conversation and that initial understanding of hey I have the skills to do what you're asking me to do regardless of my title right so mm-hmm. th- that's that's where you need to get to and that's where I think like that's why I think like the title isn't as important as when you actually get down to the, the nitty-gritty of it can you complete the task or not um, but yeah, let's move on to the next hot take here uh, react sucks I've heard this hot take many times um and it's just like the the point like again the point of these hot takes is to get a reaction out of someone get someone to say something really that's usually what what people why people post these things 
And the reality is, is like there isn't much ground to stand on when someone says React sucks. Like you're not expanding on what you don't like about it. You're not expanding on like the other alternatives and why they're better. You know what I mean? Like it's it's a hot take because it's like a quick thing that has a immediate reaction to it. My reaction to it is no, it does not suck. Uh, React is a very very good framework slash library, whatever you want to call it. Uh, for web development, UI creation, and it is a pioneer in the space that led us to better frameworks, perhaps, or frameworks that have competed against each other. And it also is progressively evolving all the freaking time. Like, it's all the time getting better. So just giving it a blanket statement of it's sucking is just a – it's just a bad hot take. Like, that, that is a bad take period. I am not a React maxi. I don't love React and it's not my number one framework that I would choose, but I would never say that it sucks because it absolutely does not. I've used it quite a bit. It has its inconveniences, but it also has some things that it does really well. And because of it, we have frameworks like Vue and Svelte, which are my preference. And But they also have negatives about them. Like I'm sure some people say that Svelte sucks. It's just not as popular and doesn't get as much of a reaction because it's not as popular. So people will constantly do this hot take, which is kind of annoying. It's definitely the byproduct of being big. Yeah. If if you're big in anything, you run a big institution, you run a big tax firm, you run a big pharmacy chain, whatever it is, people are going to be... I'm never going into that place again. People are going to have those kind of hot takes. I'm never doing that again. I'm never going to use React again. I no one should ever use React. Just to, for for whatever reason and and sometimes the reasons are good. Sometimes it's very much like, "Hey, this tool is bad for these particular things." The like for example, WordPress is is I would say not super difficult, but has its difficulties with maintenance. So it's bad for maintenance for consumers it's bad it's not accessible consumer maintenance in my opinion because it can just crash and then it's like well all right but it's great at being a blog tool having an ecosystem of plugins being expandable being accessible meaning there's a lot of posting services that literally are for just wordpress a lot of one-click installers lots of resources online to learn it those type of things. But you know for sure people are going to be swearing off React, swearing off WordPress because they're big. Sure enough, I'm sure there's people that have already sworn off Svelte. And as Svelte grows, I'm sure it'll get even more hate. But it's because there is always sort of two arguments. And some people do it for the inflammatory yelling and to the inflammatory let's get a fight going. But other times it's just literally there's a reason. There's a reason for that. Absolutely. Uh, okay, moving on to the next one here. We're going back to the days of PHP. This one is a more like recent one, I think, uh, or at least it's popped its head up again recently. So essentially what this means is, uh, recently especially, we're moving towards a co-location type of architecture in our uh, JavaScript code. And what, by, what I mean by co-location is like your front-end code, so your UI logic, and your backend code, so your server logic, is located in one file, right? So your templating and your server calls and your API calls all in one file. And they can communicate with each other and all that great stuff. That's what PHP 
was kind of known for and was also berated for for a while. And now we're moving towards like JavaScript doing the same thing as like the next level solution for that. And people are like, well, now we're going back to the days of, of PHP, right? Like a lot of people say that and they, they say it as like a negative thing. Um, my view on this is that like the way we're doing co-location now. So what one example of it is the new app router directory in uh, Next.js, where again, you can write backend and front end code using a, a hook with like use client and it allows for interactivity on the front end and also data transfer between the two. How I see it now is like, kind yes, kind of, we're going back to the days of PHP where yes, you are writing the logic in like right in the same file, but that's sort of where the differences, sort of where the comparison stops. Everything else, the way it's handled, the way the data is passed back and forth, the typing, uh, how it's rendered on the server and the client, like how it's passed back and forth, that's all different and that's all progressed. The way we can create interactive experiences on the web because JavaScript is the native language of the web is a lot easier than how it was back in the PHP days. Like I've done it with PHP in one file and I've done it with uh, JavaScript in one file. It's better with JavaScript. I like it better with JavaScript. It's a preference thing. Obviously, all of this stuff is a preference thing, but it, I like it better with JavaScript. I like how it works. I like the de developer experience of it. And in my opinion, it is a progression on what we've done with PHP. Yes, there is some similarity, but the similarities aren't really that big. Um, having said that, having co-location be a magic thing where like, uh, I think Remix does this where you can literally have like an island of server logic in your file, right? Like you can have like a use island or something like that in your, in, in a file with front end code. And it will during compile time or during whatever, uh, it will literally rip that part out and put it in its own file, right? So it's like fake co-location or you're co-locating only in a visual sense. That stuff is confusing as hell to me because when you're reading the code and you don't like unless you're really into the ecosystem and you understand how it works, you can it can be kind of dangerous because you're passing. First of all, usually when you're doing back end code, it's a lot of authentication stuff. So you're passing data back and forth between front end and back end in the same file. You can accidentally screw up and pass in like sensitive information to the front end, like an API key. And then that API key will be exposed forever. Uh, so there's a lot of issues with that method and I don't like that type of co-location. Next app router does it a little bit better, but even then I'm in general, I kind of like to avoid it. Uh, and this might be a hot take on its own, like avoiding co-location, but it's like a very niche hot take. Um, I prefer having my server logic and my front end logic in separate files. The way, the way that Svelte does it, it Svelte kit does it specifically is the way I like it. SvelteKit has a file, like in one route, essentially, if you need some backend logic on a page, like you're, you're calling an API and need to, you know, use an API key, you can't do that on the front end. You can't do it on the .svelte file. So you can create a plus uh, page.server.js or TypeScript file, and anything in that file will run on the server. But anything you pass through or through a return statement on that file will send right back to the client, to the, to the front end. So it's easy to pass information back and forth, but they are very two distinct files, easy to tell them apart. So I'm, I like that method 
preference wise. Uh, I don't know if that's a hot take or not, but yeah, co-location, eh, not a huge fan of it. PHP, we're not in the days of PHP. That's the end of that chapter for me. I don't really know much about this, but I do know about publishing API keys publicly, and that so this sounds it's right up my alley. <laughs> yep. Publishing API keys, passwords in plain text, usernames, addresses probably at some point I've probably done it. Oh yeah. More than likely. Yep. I mean, I mean really, this was I've in done it. in training for me, anyway, at least. But I, I I've one hundred percent done it because I didn't understand like for a long time I didn't understand the fact that front end has no security, like at all, pretty much. Um so that's I've an upcoming. It. That's an upcoming TikTok. I have an idea oh, where shit. I'm going to be talking about. Uh, I mean, I guess shameless self plug a bit, but I'm going to be talking about the question that we had when we first got started, where learning vanilla JS. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I mean, I can just go in and just literally say, like, here's two input boxes. Here's my username. Here's my password. And I'll I'll have my JavaScript check for that. And then I realized early on or later on, I should say, that the inspect element doesn't just show me the CSS. It shows me, like, I just go into the sources and look at the script that I'm running and then just look at my username and password. And anyone can do this. And no one's hacking. It's, like, right there in plain text. It's not like I entered in some super secret dev code to, to get this. So, I mean, I was learning. Luckily, I did that in training on a website that was locally run. But I'm going to uh, describe that on TikTok for people that have that question, because I'm sure it comes up. Well, we know it comes up because it's come up with us. All right. Next uh, hot take here. Tailwind sucks. Um, disagree. It. I'm out of here. Strong disagree. Strong disagree with this one. Uh, I use I use Tailwind uh, quite a bit. I've used Tailwind in the past. I've used SCSS, I've used regular CSS, I've used all of the different bootstrap, all the different UI stuff. I'm not a UI expert, but I have used everything that could possibly build UIs at this point on the web. And Tailwind is good. Saying that an entire ecosystem, an entire framework sucks again, back to the React sucks comment, is dumb. Uh, <laughs> and this is directed directly at one of my friends who said it in a twi- in a... Twitter reply that I had, uh, they're dumb. It's dumb. Tailwind does not suck. Uh, it has a lot of benefits that don't aren't directly obvious. The issue of Tailwind is that you do have to buy into Tailwind. You cannot use Tailwind and sprinkle in other stuff. Like you can't like treat Tailwind as if it's not a framework. It is a framework. It does do a lot of things for you. You need to accept that. For instance, people will complain about the the fact that the class names are really long, right? Because you have to put in all of your d- different uh, class class name right into the class, into the HTML. That is true. And you shouldn't try to do something about it. It is something you have to accept as part of the Tailwind experience. If you hate that so much, like if you really, really hate it, Tailwind is not for you. Yes. Okay. Maybe for you, Tailwind does suck if you really hate that. But to be honest, as long as you're putting it in the correct or like you have a, a, a auto formatter that will order the different names like the MB, you know, margin bottom, flex, justify content, all that into the same order for each and every line. It is fairly readable. Like I can go in and read another person's Tailwind file, like Tailwind HTML file and understand what's going on pretty easily. Whereas with CSS or SCSS, whatever, everyone has their own design system. Everyone has their own naming scheme, BEM and all that garbage, whatever. They 
I would have to go in and read the HTML, the CSS, look at it on screen, go back and forth. Like it's harder for me to go into a custom project than it is for me to go into a Tailwind project. That's one advantage of Tailwind. The other advantage of it, and the one that I really like the most, is the the um, UI framework that it gives you out of the box. So this is a little bit more complicated because Tailwind is just essentially CSS, uh, right? Like you just write, like writing short form CSS really quickly. But what it does do is it does do some standardized spacing Right. So when you're doing your margin bottoms, you have the option of one, two, three, four. Those are different REMs, so different, uh, different variables that are automatically generated for you. It gives you a color scheme out of the box of different shades and shading is a pain in the ass. Like knowing when to use, like how to shade down your color scheme custom wise. That's a pain. And it gives you that out of the box for the basic colors. And you can obviously go in and customize it however you want. But just having that as a UI developer out of the box is really, really cool. Uh, it obviously gives you like border rounding standardizations so that you're always rounding your buttons in the same way. That's a lot easier to do with a framework like Tailwind rather than making your own. It's all doable. Obviously on your own, like you can create everything that Tailwind has given you. You can oh, totally do that, but it's not. You have to standardize it yourself. Tailwind has that standardized for you, right? Like the, the, the typography help that it does, the scaling down between H1s, H2s, H3s, it does all that for you. And it does it really, really well and standard and easily accessible too. The accessibility that it offers is also really good. Like it just has the, that basic framework, the initial step that you need to take already done. And then all you need to do is like essentially edit the colors, edit the rounding, edit the, uh, the types of buttons you want and stuff like that. And it's a little bit easier to get started with. This is something that, uh, I'm kind of on the fence. I don't think Tailwind sucks. I just get why a lot of people start yelling about it. And the, the big argument that I hear of which there are many, but the biggest one is always the cluttering problem where a div that needs to be centered is going to have needs to be centered and have other uh, bits of styling is going to have three, four, five, six classes. It's going to be hard to read. It's going to be, you know, really messy. And in a way, I get that. Um, I mean, <laughs> shapeless self plug again, I guess we I just did a TikTok script where um, teaching nth child the pseudo class nth child and nth child I'm literally using in lieu of another class in lieu of another ID to identify one of the children in, in a, uh, in a, in the Dom. And so there's definitely something to be said where we don't want another class. We don't want another ID. We want to use the functions, the methods, the, uh, methodology, I suppose, of CSS as much as we can. We want to leverage the features of CSS as much as we can in order to clean up our HTML and also more or less clean up our CSS. And the child is one example of, of a way to do that. An example of what I mean is if you have a literally a list of items and they're all supposed to be the same style, let's just say there's four of them list of items and it just says like the toppings of a pizza. And then for some reason, maybe for branding, you want to change the text color exclusively of every other one. 
Well, what I've reached for in the past, sometimes still reach for because I forget, is I'll add an I add not an ID, but add a class called like red or class called whatever. And then it'll change every other one that I've manually gone in and it'll manually add the class or sorry, it'll, I'll man, I will manually add the class red to every other option. And then there'll be two items in this four item list that are red now. But the better way to do it is use nth child even or nth child odd and then have it do that. And what that allows you to do is have effectively one styling for your list. So all your font, your, your font family, your, your, your padding, your margin, all the rest of it. And then right below that, you have the same, you have the same sort of selector, but you add an nth child even and you just change the text color. To me, that looks a little bit cleaner. And so I get the fight against Tailwind in a way that, Hey, we're, we're muddling up our HTML. However, this is talking in a, in a system or in a way in which you're in both your CSS and your HTML constantly back and forth. Tailwind to me is a way to stop the jumping where you want to stay in the HTML as long as possible. You don't want to keep flipping between files. And so it is more readable if you want to stay in your HTML. You can see, oh, this is, you know, display none. This is display flex. This is being justified this way. This text color is being moved this way, this and that. And for the majority of the Tailwind um, use use case, because there are those custom classes where you can make, you know, make a custom class that's just called content box or something, and then kind of compile a bunch of Tailwind classes inside of those, for example. But for the most part, if we're talking about, say, vanilla <laughs> Tailwind CSS, it does get cluttered. But not cluttered, but it not cluttered if you want to stay in your HTML. It allows you to just stay in there and, okay, I want this to be none, blah, 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 blah. And then the idea is, is that as you've, once you've made your structure, you've also made your, your, your CSS. Some people will work back and forth, back and forth. Well, they will write, write the nav bar, meaning they write the HTML for the nav bar. Then they go over to the CSS and they make it look nice. Then they go and they write the slider or they put the slider in the structure in the HTML. Then they go and they style the slider in CSS. They go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So this, I, the reason why I'm on the fence is because I get both arguments. Obviously, there's more arguments than the ones I've said. But it is a question. One of the big questions I have is what's your workflow like? Do you per, Would you prefer to stay in your HTML longer? If you would prefer to stay in your HTML longer, in terms of you your uh, your workflow as a developer, then maybe you would want Tailwind CSS and then you don't have to learn CSS, you know, super in depth. You're learning a little bit of it as you go. You're, you're, you're understanding, you know, like D none is display none and this and that, whatever the classes are Tailwind. It's been a while now. And you're not bogged down by having to go in and be like, Oh my God, my selectors are all messed up and I got to learn my selectors. Oh, I'm using SCSS and now my selectors have like this hierarchy and I've messed up the, and you're not bogged down by that. But I do get, the idea of, hey, I would like to meddle in both the HTML and meddle with my CSS to make them as clean as possible. If you're a person that wants them to be both clean as possible and you know your CSS really well and you know your HTML really well, then maybe that's better for you. But if you even if you know CSS and you want to stay in your HTML, then maybe the HTML alongside Tailwind CSS is going to be better for you. I just think it might just be up to workflow and project. I, it is. And I think, okay, so I'm not going to go too, too far into this anymore because I think we need to have a whole episode on the, this 
just this discussion like a tailwind again because I have so much more insight into what's going on here. I personally, uh, this is going to be my final point. It's having like I agree with what you're saying from a visual perspective, but I think if you're a really good CSS developer, see you understand CSS, you can be better with Tailwind, and you will be faster using Tailwind as you learn it than you would be using SCSS or CSS. So no matter what, in any situation, you will be better with uh, Tailwind. So I th- again, I don't want to get too far into it because I have a whole other, I have a whole spiel that I want to go down. But uh, there is a lot of benefits that are hidden away until you kind of understand what Tailwind is. Future episode for sure. Then I yep. would say because maybe I maybe I'll play with Tailwind again. It's been a long time, and then we could I can we can come in in different angles. Let's do it. I love it. Uh, and with that, let's move on to the next hot take here, which is devs don't know HTML. And this one is true for a lot of reasons. Uh, for, for the most part, obviously some people do know HTML, but I have looked at source code of a lot of websites, a lot of larger websites, and there's just divs everywhere. And the problem with not knowing HTML isn't the fact that you're not going to get your website up and running and it's going to look good. Even, uh, the problem comes with accessibility. And if you don't know HTML, the reality is, is that a lot of people with accessibility issues, uh, maybe visually impaired, colorblind, whatever, like there's a lot of accessibility issues are going to have a worse experience on your site. And the, you might not see that as a long-term issue. So a lot of people will just build their websites and for the most part, it's going to function well and everyone's going to be using it and giving them compliments. But that one out of every hundred people that can't use it well is just going to bounce off your site and you're never going to hear from them, right? So you're limiting who can use your site. Yes, it's an investment of your time to help that one out of a hundred people or one out of 50 people, but it's something that is 100% needed and needs to be more standardized, in my opinion, across the web. Uh, I think like frameworks like React, uh, like Tailwind, like every like stuff that already comes with accessibility out of the box is the, a step in the right direction because it allows you to write more accessible. It's not going to be perfect because you still have to define what an H1 is, H2 is. You still have to define a section, an article, all the different HTML tags, but it does help you with some of the, you know, labels and some of the construct page construction stuff and the colors, especially uh, stuff that you would not see initially as a regular, you know, normal dev without an accessibility issue. Uh, so it's, it's something that we need to take seriously. And I think it is very true that a lot of people don't. Next thing. It's no, uh, sorry. I, no, I was ahead. about to talk and well, talked with my mic muted. <laughs> sorry. Uh, no. So the, uh, I think, I think it is absolutely a key. It's, it, it's a key like skill to understand where HTML encompasses and what HTML encompasses. It's easy to make absolutely everything out of a div, right? You can go in and just make div this, div that, div this, but then the way to really think about it for me is just think about it as if you're just reading the HTML. And this is kind of a way, kind of a very rough way of what a screen reader reads the HTML, reads the structure. So if you have no, let's say nav bar area, no nav bar element, then 
it just sees it as a div. Oh, it's a divider, 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 it's a divider. And having the nav element is absolutely a divider, but there's no context there. And we're given context visually if we're able to see what's going on. But for someone who can't see what's going on, there's no context for them personally. And there's no context or minimal context for their screen reader. So to use the correct elements where possible, and I'm not saying I do this perfectly. I have tons of projects that I've done where everything's just a div. Absolutely. Even today, I'm sure that I could use more specific tags in places. Absolutely. There's places, a a really key one actually is people have cowered away from the table tag forever because tables used to be how we laid things out when HTML and CSS and web development in, in, in general was in their infancy. People have just cowered away from table tags. Tables are fantastic when you need an actual table. Instead of it being a divider, 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 divider. How do you tell the difference between regular blog content, which is in a div, the nav bar in a div, a button made from a div, and then a table on the page made from a whole bunch of nested divs? You can't looking at the HTML. And we might be able to tell the difference with classes if someone has good class names, has good ID names as needed. But it's still confusing and it requires a double look. You look, it's like, what's this div? Oh, it's a table. What's this div? Oh, it's a table row. When it could, you could literally, the first glance could be table. Table row. Okay, I got it. Oh, this is the nav bar area. Cool. And if if you need classes, if you need comments to dictate or to convey what that bit of HTML you wrote is, doesn't mean you necessarily did it wrong, but you should maybe go and look and see if there's a tag applicable to that and see if you can use that. That's what I've started doing. That's how I started learning different tags. Like Mike said, there's audio tags. There's there's a whole bunch of them out there that I've even forgotten over the years. And if I get to the point where I'm like, man, this is a lot of nested divs, I'll, I need to comment this. I go, hang on, let me go and just take a quick peek and make sure that there isn't a specific element for this in my HTML. And then if there is, then I will try my best to convert it over to the proper labeling, the proper elements. I think that's a really good kind of insight into how to become a better accessibility developer. I need to listen to that as well, because personally, I need to get better at it. I think everyone kind of needs to get better at it no matter what, because stuff changes on a consistent basis. So you need to be following up with it. And the issue is like you're not as incentivized as like learning a new JavaScript API because that can affect directly your, you know, bottom line, whereas accessibility sometimes doesn't, but you need to have that ingrained as well. And I think it can affect your bottom line if you not do not have an accessible website. So take it seriously. It's an important part of web development. Next hot take. Front end is harder than back end. This is an interesting one uh, that's come up kind of recently where someone will post back end is harder than the front end, front end is harder than the back end, back and forth kind of thing. But the front end being harder than the back end, I never really took that seriously until I really delved into some front end logic. And if you type, if you bundle in the design UX side of things, as well as the complex frameworks that are being developed to handle a lot of the really complex UX and UI problems that we're creating for ourselves, um, obviously for a good reason, but regardless, there is a lot of 
there's a lot of logic that you need to understand. There's a lot of connections to databases that you need to understand. There is some validity to this statement. And the backend is, can get difficult. Don't get me wrong. Backend, if you're, again, if you bundle in DevOps, if you bundle in server infrastructure, if you bundle in scaling of databases and database querying, that can get extremely complex. That can, you know, you can get down some pretty, pretty uh, math heavy, uh, pretty math heavy like rabbit holes there. So to say it as like a, a general statement maybe is not genuine because backend still does have quite a bit that you need to understand, but frontend is becoming more complex and I can see the validity of this argument, especially when you're bringing in design. A lot of design is a very difficult process and especially when you're creating unique animation heavy design or you start throwing in some 3D rendering with 3JS and stuff like that, that can get math heavy as well. So again, really interesting take. The back and forth on this has been great other than the people obviously calling it, you know, gatekeeping and all that. It's not, this is a, this is actually a good conversation to have. Can we just agree that it's project centric for this though? Because <laughs> yes, because backend and, and like we've mentioned this several times backend, a lot of people will just think, Oh, it, or a lot of devs will just, there'll be front end devs that just use APIs and then they're quote unquote a like full stack dev. But there is like a whole layer that supports the back end. There's literal servers somewhere. There's, there's networking specialists in there. There's networking appliances in there. There's, uh, load balancing. If, if you're at that point, there's, you know, the, the list literally goes on and on and on and on. And if you are not dealing with a lot of that and your host is dealing with a lot of that, I mean, it doesn't make back end any easier. It's literally that you've effectively contracted that part out and you're just dealing with the server layer that they're giving you. They're dealing with the cPanel they've given you, the Plesk they've given you, which is a common um, hosting setup, especially here in Canada and in, in the United States. They'll just give you, here's like a Linux server, which has Apache, here's cPanel on there, uh, an, an MySQL server with PHP my admin, stuff like that. And you just go in and you can visually use all those tools. You sometimes, sometimes you don't even have access to the terminal. You can use command if you want occasionally. And you've effectively contracted that part out. But what happens if there are no hosts? If you think about there's no hosts to hire and you need to host it in your house, you have to think, oh, my God, like, do I have enough Internet? Well, there's your networking concern. Like, do I have enough Internet? Can I do that? What about the appliance that runs it? Well, I can't use my 13-year-old machine just sitting there in a corner because, A, it's not reliable. What if there's a power outage? Uh, what if it's not powerful enough? And then you start thinking, oh, my God. And, yes, I understand we've kind of escaped the context of back-end development and back-end web programming, if you will. But the complexity of a project really defines the complexity of, of all the pieces. If the uh, database interactions – if the API interactions, if the uh, uh, whatever you have to do with your host, if you're, oh, my God, we have to upgrade hosts because my shared hosting can't afford, like can't, uh, you know, serve this now. I have to upgrade and they're trying to source hardware. We've had this happen to us in the last couple of years where they're, they're trying to source hardware for us because they don't have the hardware. We're trying to upgrade. They're trying to help us. And it's chaos. That's really develop. That's really back end talking to, you know, networking IT talking to hosting IT, um, net, net, network admin, uh, database admin, sysadmin, all those things. So the project really dictates how complex each part is. Your UI might be super, super, super simple, 
and it might just pop out a number. There's no, you know, no unique animations. And so the front end on this particular project is super simple, but to get to that number might require a whole bunch of back end for whatever reason. So to me, this, this thing is, this is dumb because this argument, this is stupid because it's, it, <laughs> it is literally, it is literally project based. Absolutely. And I don't care if you're like, hey, you know, if we max out the difficulty of each of a project, so we max out the back end and we max out the front end and we max out the sysadmin stuff, let's say even, we max it all out, the potential difficulty on this scale of front end is higher, maybe in that one context, but there's indefinite context. There's infinite context in theory. You don't know what the next project's going to bring. You don't know what the next updates are going to bring. You don't know what the next consumer demands are going to be. So it's stupid. I'm out. (laughs) This is the point of the hot take right here to have that conversation. Love it. Um, Okay. Next one. This one is not controversial in my opinion. Uh, AWS Uh dashboard is hot garbage. Um, It is controversial. I want (laughs) to, there's some AWS people out there that really, really like their AWS infrastructure and uh, that's fine. Hats off to you. Honestly, AWS is a great service. There's, it does a ton and it's affordable. Like it is actually a fantastic platform for hosting of apps, for managing your, your virtual private servers, for managing your, you know, your data farms, whatever. Like you can do so much with, with AWS, but the dashboard is really bad. Just object. Like it, first of all, there's a thousand different services that they offer and the dashboard does not help with segregating which service does what. Um, in any way, shape or form, their naming scheme is all over the place. Like it doesn't make any sense. Every, I mean, my, my guarantee is that people are working in silos on all the different features. And then there's someone in charge of putting it all together. And they're like, I, I don't know, put it something like this. Anyway, there's not much thought process into it. AWS in general is something that like, if you delve into it, you are, you need to understand what you're getting into. Like, it is DevOps. You need to be, you need to take it seriously. If you're going to host your entire applications infrastructure on AWS, you need, you, you kind of need a team of people to manage your server infrastructure, right? Or at least a couple of AWS dedicated engineers that know their shit with AWS because it can take off into bad areas. Like you could, you could forget about something security wise. You can forget about something scaling wise. Your, your bill could skyrocket because you didn't cache something properly. Like there's so many, consequences of not taking AWS seriously that 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 services like Vercel, Netlify, GitHub Pages, whatever, are succeeding because of that reason. Like people like to shit on them and being like, oh, it's so expensive, ha ha ha. They're expensive to a certain degree, but they're way less expensive than managing a team of AWS engineers. They exist for a very good reason. There is they're there to fill a, a, a very, very, very needed portion of the market where people just need to ship the product and not worry about all the development DevOps stuff that you need to worry about with something like Azure or AWS. So like, yes, love the product, but in general, the UI, and I, I don't know if they can fix this. This is the thing. Like, I don't think this is a fixable issue. This is just because they offer so many products that are crucial to a lot of different things that you just need to take it more seriously than just using like if you're just like hobbyist de- developer or you're a single t- a single person developer for an entire application to take on the infrastructure of AWS and their dashboard is a is too big of a task in my opinion. 
Well, here here's the thing, though, is this argument really kind of falls back on the other argument, like I mm-hmm. said, where a lot of times the back end engineer is doing the AWS stuff and they're not completely aware in in not. They're usually not aware fully of how the server itself is working. They're more on the application layer of making the server, you know, write to a database, read from a database, do some calculations, uh, authenticate people, those type of things. That's where they're, that's where their sort of bread and butter is. They're not really aware of like a lot of the server stuff, which is, you know, is it using enough RAM? Is there enough networking capacity here? Are there, is there a, do we have enough public IPs? Like these are serious questions that come into play. And AWS obviously helps with some of that. Obviously you're not, you're not going into their data center and hooking everything up, but this falls back into that situation. And like you said, Mike, you people might be working siloed. This is probably the argument between people that have a super complex backend and their AWS dashboard becomes an absolute disaster because it's littered with different features, different servers, different hardware, different this, different that, maybe even different projects in the same da- in the same dashboard. But if I go in there and I'm like, I just need to host a database and I don't want to use shared hosting for some reason because I don't I think it's not going to be powerful enough. I don't know. I'm making this up. And I just go in there and I have one or two databases. Maybe I'm going to be like, this is fantastic. Look, here's my two databases, even though maybe their names are going to be buggered up or something like you said, um, having I haven't used AWS, to be clear. But let's just say my, for some reason, the naming can only be done by AWS. And even if the names are messed up, it's only two, two databases. So once I memorize the two names, that's perfect. But then once the project goes nuts and it has 250 names and they're all random names in this made up scenario. Yeah. Now my project is a real big mess and now I don't like the da- the dashboard anymore. So that this is, I think really kind of based on that based on yeah. the, is your like the complexity of your front and your back end in this case, more the back end. Yep. If you can afford AWS engineers, AWS is great. Period. If your app is making enough money that it needs it, it you need to go on it. And that you'll know when that happens. Um, okay. I'm going to do one last hot take to end this all off. Uh, this one has been popping up quite a bit. Uh, a lot of people are kind of popping up from fear. But the hot take is no point in starting to learn web development because AI will take our jobs anyway. Uh, this one is from... Okay, so... I keep flip-flopping on this one, although obviously like I'm, I'm very much on the point of like you, you can definitely still learn web development. You can still get a job in the field right now. Uh, I'm more the, I'm more flip-flopping on the, on the severity of how much AI is actually going to take our jobs, like quote unquote. Um, at this point in time, from my extensive use of stuff like ChatGPT, OpenAI, uh, a lot of their different models, I don't see it being as a huge risk factor. Um, yes, if it increases exponentially a couple more times in the next couple of years, this could all change and you gotta, you know, put your, keep your ear, ear to the ground for that. But I don't see that happening. And OpenAI has come out and said they don't see that happening. <laughs> so I don't know if they're saying that as a, a marketing technique or whatever. But from what we're seeing right now, uh, it's a great tool. But it is just that AI is a tool to make us more productive and to help us do some things that would take maybe longer to do before. Yes, in certain situations, there might be less developers required for certain projects. That is a real possibility because of AI today. But that, I think, is outweighed by the fact that AI also allows larger projects 
or smaller projects to develop, to be developed at a lower, at a smaller scale and an easier lift for non-technical founders to be able to onboard like one developer to do a lot of things and then grow to need more developers down the line. So eventually like tech in general is going to grow because of AI and because of that, more people will be onboarded into tech for web development and other development and all that. So for now, I see it as a tool that actually increases the likelihood of tech jobs um, rather than decreases them. Now, this is very speculative. That's just my opinion. A lot of people disagree with me on this one. This is a real hot take. Uh, but in, I, I just, that's how I see it happening. It's a similar, this, a similar thing happened as we progressed in development, like when web development became more accessible in terms of like JavaScript having more core functionalities added to it instead of making it so that yes, you, it is easier to build JavaScript applications. Now, instead of taking away jobs, it actually provided a boom in the industry. More jobs were created because all of a sudden there's more people that can create more complex things that need more developers. So that's how I see it happening right now. And I think you should continue to learn web development and try to get into the industry because it is a good industry to be in. Uh, well, I actually have a, a literal hot take here. Uh, I saw a headline and I just pulled it up. This is from Times Now, and this is related to the story. IBM to replace 7,800 jobs with AI <laughs> and announces yeah. hiring freeze, according to a report. Uh, now, that's just the headline. But um, this is like the, the, the problem with looking at isolated incidents like this and extrapolating them indefinitely is that if we did this a hundred years ago, we wouldn't have any farmers and people still have farms. If that makes sense, there was like a big upset, you know, Oh my God, everyone's moving to the cities way back in the day. Oh my God, everyone's moving to the cities. What are we going to do? The tractor is going to replace all the farmers. And then people are going to have to move to the cities and get an office job. Don't be a farmer. The tractor is going to replace all the farmers and one farmer is going to be able to do a whole bunch of stuff. Now our tractors are more powerful than ever. They're smart. They have a, they have AC, they have DRM. So you can't replace, can't repair them yourself. So I hear, uh, so that even that's been controversial, but it's very much a, a situation where we still have farmers and it's 2023. We don't, all our farmers have not been replaced by all our farmers have not been replaced by, by AI. They have not been replaced by tractors. So the reason why I bring up farming is that it's one of the oldest industries, obviously, as a thing that nourishes large populations. Um, and it's it it, it kind of like points a question where maybe the people are right in that, hey, the demand might go down a lot. The demand might go down by half for web developers. The demand could go down by 25 percent. The demand could go down by half for a year. And then new jobs emerge, kind of like what Mike's saying, and then the demand goes back up. None of this is something that we can estimate. And COVID-19 is a prime sort of testament to this, where if we look at COVID-19 in terms of the context of the tech jobs, everyone's starting to work from home, everyone video calling, et cetera, et cetera, has basically solidified Zoom as one of the big video calling platforms. Mike and I are using it right now to record this show. So it it really does point 
it really does show you that the market is fluid. It's not, this has happened, therefore this will happen. There are absolutely indicators to things, and you can, like Mike said, keep your ear to the ground, and you can say, I don't think this is going to be worth it. I think that web development is dead. Then go and do something else if that's the way that you feel, because you could be right. But if you look at the numbers, and I don't remember them offhand, but the numbers of, say, the people that have been in Wall Street for years and years and years, their ability to make good estimates is not even 50% of the time is it not, like they, they take, they make an estimate less than 50% of the time that happens less than 50% of the time. And so this is very much just another way where this isn't wall street. This is, you know, people's livelihoods, but it is fluid. What happens if all browsers go away because we all get optics like they, like they have in cyberpunk, which are eyeball, like digital eyeball replacements, and nobody uses websites anymore. What happens if all websites go into VR and the VR platforms take over them and then wet the web as we know it goes away? What happens if the environmental impact of data centers becomes too much and we get rid of all of them? And so most websites have to shut down except for the biggest ones. There's like a hundred thousand million whatever what ifs. And it's good to pay attention to indicators. It's good to, you know, form your own opinion. It's good to research and find multiple sources for things. It's good for all that. But to be super like this is going to happen, like for, for sure, we're like, that's it. We're done. Web development's done. Well, I heard this 10 years ago, I think, or maybe a little less about truck driving. And now there's a truck driver shortage here. <laughs> Last year, I heard there was a truck driver shortage in, in this province or whatever. And it's like, is truck driving going away? Well, maybe, but maybe not. Yes, there's automated trucks, but do they still need a truck driver in the cab? Maybe. What if regulations state there must be a truck driver in the cab? All of a sudden, truck driving is still a thing. The AI drives, maybe the person sleeps, but if an alarm goes off, they run up and they have to, whatever, I don't know, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? None of us know. So I think that, I think that it's, you know, it absolutely makes sense to go into industries that you think are booming or about to boom. And it's the same way that people invest in, in stocks and invest in ideas and invest in their own, like, hey, I think, I think I have a great idea for a, a website. I'm going to do that. That's you investing in it, thinking that that's going to happen. But it's 100% speculation or, it's 100% speculation or it's not speculation. It's it's 100% an estimate because you don't know what's going to happen. You you can only research so much and then you're in, in, you're doing an informed guess. Otherwise, an informed guess, otherwise known as an estimate. And so that's what we're all doing. And Mike will get, you know, passionate about one point. I'll get passionate about another. And I'll be like, no, this is what's going to happen. And Mike will be like, no, this is going to happen. We all do stuff like that, whether it's about web development or gaming or whatever. It's going to happen regardless. But. To just be like super be like, nope, that's it. That thing is dead. That's it. That might be your hot take. But it is not the take. The take will be what ends up happening. Yep, exactly. And uh, just basing your entire decision, like if you really like web development and you were going down that path already and this was the path that you wanted to be on and you're going to pivot now because of the fact that you're worried that all the jobs are going to be gone to AI. That's a bad 
decision in my opinion um obviously there's other factors that you should be considering that you are probably considering uh but in general like yes ibm has laid off 8600 employees yes they've said that you know a certain percentage of those are going to be replaced by ai uh i call bullshit just to be clear sorry yeah with 7800 i call bullshit i think they're laying people off because they have the opportunity to lay people off and increase their earnings just like all the other companies in the tech did right now most of them did not require we're not required to lay off to survive. They are they are laying off to profit. That is their point. IBM is probably doing the same thing. Again, pure speculation on my part. I have no evidence to back this up, but they're using AI as a buzzword in this climate to, again, up their stock. In my opinion, they might be using AI in different ways. They might replace a certain portion of their people with AI, but... I don't think that that's what's happening. Anyway, yeah, uh, that's about it for me, though. I think I'm – I like the – the reason I like talking about the hot takes isn't because I want to do controversial things. I think the, the the stupid takes come up with good conversations if you treat them like that. If you try to treat them as something that's offensive or whatever, you're probably not going to have a good time. And then hot takes are going to just trigger you and you're probably going to block them in your Twitter words or whatever. But that's fine. Like, it's up to you. It's just I like to treat them as a way to see how people think and have normal conversations with people that are willing to do that. It's kind of like bringing up a serious topic and then being okay with being uncomfortable with it. It's almost like my weird, like, not my weird, but my 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 title of the week, Life Goal Seeker, where that motivational speaker came on. It's like that's a topic that. I guess you could say triggered me where I'm like, uh oh, but it's something that led to something good just because I thought it through and like kind of had that conversation with myself, but still the same sort of principle. Well, that ends that ends our hot takes for the evening for the morning, whatever time it is where you're listening to this. But before we end, we do want to uh, thank our three dollar tier patrons, Ryan Gatchel from Blue Black Digital on BlueBlackDigital.com, Tim from the Web Hacker on the WebHacker.com. Dave Hashdash from NineBlockMedia, NineBlockMedia.com. Jason from Geek Life Radio via GeekLifeRadio.com. Michael Curie from MC Web Studio via MCWebStudio.ca. Magnus from YesWeb via YesWeb.se. Jeff from Twitter via at the Jeff and Kale. Fire Ant Season via FireAntSeason.com. And Gunner Burnett via GunnerBurnett.com. Feel free to leave a comment or a review on the platform that you're listening to this on. And this outro will sign us off. You've been listening to HTML All The Things Podcast. Web development, web design, and small business. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show. And we hope you appreciate that we talk to you like human beings. And we hope you had some fun. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hit us up on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon at HTML All The Things. And on Twitter at HTML Everything. Until next time, this is HTML All The Things, signing off.